The Joe Beaver Show is on the air. 22. What do you mean? 22. After all the uncertainties of the past two years, there's been an expectation and a hope for a more normal 22-23. But now the question is... USC and UCLA do. They're both Big Ten schools. Yeah. But where does that leave the rest of us? Who could possibly answer that question in this strange new era of analytics? Mad transfers. How did it get here? Well, it looks to me like you portaled it. A what? You know, portaled from wherever you were to here. What's that? It's a, a different kind of portal. Oh, it's just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. And realignments. They both big pencils. Yeah. All we do know is the boys are back. And the Joe Beaver Show plots its own course. Now there are a few more topics that we have to cover. And we will not talk about transfers, and we will not talk about my mother. We will talk about what I want to talk about. Fair enough. Who's next? Who's next? Joe Beaver is on 1240 Joe Radio. So you saw the speech, you saw, saw it. it, and did it make you tear up the whole, now old Diz doesn't want to hurt you kids, I wish I could have had your book learning, and I never had it, I had to go to work, you know, when I, I was, uh, I, I mean, I thought that was a beautiful I speech will tell on you the this. radio. I will tell you this, loving Brian's song, all those movies, getting choked up at all the points that everybody does, I did not get choked up okay. at that, however... I loved that movie. Isn't it? That's fun, my favorite it's a fun old movie. school ba- black and white movie. Interesting. I could watch it multiple times. Isn't it good? I loved it. Yeah. I got choked up on many points in that right. movie where normal people wouldn't. Some issues between he and his wife yes. really bothered me. Yeah. Um, I just love that character. I agree. And I love that movie. The speech, not so much. Now, maybe if they did it more modern holiday Hollywood style with some some dramatic music. Um, I love the ending, the way that they, oh, <laughs> the man. lady says, you just keep on uh, learning them kids and we'll, I'll keep on learning them. English. You yeah, keep yeah. on teaching them baseball and I'll keep on learning Learn them, them English. English. Okay, yeah. Dizzy. It all was right. a great, great movie. And I like too, because, you know, I've heard yeah. of Dizzy Dana, all that stuff, but it was educational because I didn't know really his history. And so everything in that film was new to me, including his brother getting yeah. on there and, and he just kept pitching his brother. Now. I was looking for uh, Richard Crenna. Yes. I, I couldn't see Daffy him. Daffy Dean, the I brother. know, but I didn't know that. You couldn't recognize him? I thought it was him? supposed to be Dizzy Dean was Richard Crenna. No, Dan And Taylor. I'm like, now that's not the same guy that was in First Blood. Right. And I couldn't see a younger Richard Crenna in that. Kim comes home from work, and she knows everything about <laughs> yeah, old she movies. And she <laughs> goes, well, no, that's, that's Richard Crenna. Right. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Everybody's talking about Richard Crenna like he's the big star of the movie, and his brother Paul... Had really a bit part. Yes. Why would they make a big deal about a bit part? Well, Crenna wasn't a big star then at all. And Paul Daffy Dean, Dizzy's brother, Dizzy played by Dan Daly. Anyway, I'm glad you watched it. The Pride of St. Louis. I think it's a sweet baseball biopic. No question about it. You said Chet Huntley was the play-by-play guy. And I was going to say as an observation, a very good play-by-play depiction in a film. Yes, I agree. They got it right. They did. Where most films, even after that, did not does not right. get it right. Was Chet it, Huntley was the guy in the booth that when Diz 
said, this will be my last broadcast. This is Dizzy Dean signing off. Don't forget to touch all the bases or yeah, something yeah, of that yeah, effect. Yeah. Because I'm done, and if I'm hurting you kids, the speech where he says, I, I've been told that I've been hurting you kids who are trying to go to school yeah. and education. I wish I would have had one. That's the best and most important it was, thing. It was a great and he speech. quits on the air. Yeah. That's a true story. And, you know, I mean, Hollywood embellishes a lot of things, but that was so good. They didn't, that was, and speaking of which, Jeff Manning, 1130, the Oregonian business writer, finance writer, sports business writer. Uh, How real was that? that yeah. <laughs> we're going to get Jeff on who did the deep dive into Nike because I saw air the other day. And so it's back on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. He'll join us. Kate Maxim from the women's rowing team will join us at 1230. And we may have somebody to slide in today at 1205 it could be dave dangler it could be rich price it could be jim joyce a portrait of the umpire as a young man jim joyce <laughs> a former major league umpire who can help us with the play oh yeah and the force out a non for a second base play yeah. from the other day because that's the play that keeps giving in terms of generating questions and so on but quick question Chet Huntley is the guy that chases him and says, though. Diz, Diz, come back. Come Who were back. there two when they depicted play-by-play? Because one guy was very yeah. good. The other guy, there was another guy that looked a little fuller in the face, mm -hmm. and he was very good as well. Yeah. Well, Chet Huntley's the guy at the end when Chet says, by your cards and letters, yeah. we understand that Dizzy's summing up of the game is one of your favorite parts. So here's <laughs> Dizzy Dean with the sum up of the game. Right, right. And that's Chet Huntley well, introducing summary, Dizzy. Summary today because... Because I'm was, here to say was, this is my last broadcast. I was very upset that his wife left him. I didn't like that. Well, I know, but... She it, just it, gave up on it. <laughs> and they were in love the whole time. It's a sweet, sweet movie. And the final, you know, the knock on the door. Yeah. And the, the little, little boy, can Dizzy come out and play? Which wasn't good for their marriage because she had given him this this speech about you're a child. You're right. a child. You need right. to grow up. And then she leaves him. And then, you know, after everything's done, the kids come and to the door. She comes back home and the kids and She's come, okay with him being a child. Dizzy come out and play. That was one of my favorite lines that my mom used to say. Because I would go down the street. <laughs> and there was a Buster and Donald lived down the street. And Buster was pretty well on in years. But I would walk down the street sometimes and knock on the door. Can Buster come out and play? <laughs> and Donna would say, yeah. And Buster would come out and we'd play catch or shoot hoops together. Oh, that's after nice. seeing the old, you know, pride of St. Louis. <laughs> anyway, it, I'm much. glad you saw it. Yeah. Sweet. Very Loved sweet. It. Good morning, John. Welcome to the Joe Beaver Welcome show. home. Good call last night. Good game last Important night. Important game. Yeah. Good game. Yeah. It was And open phones right now for anybody that wants to text or call or comment on anything, but that's a good win for the team. The Beavers are back in the discussion now of hosting. Yes. Which a few weeks ago, ah, you know, just make the tournament, just get in somehow. Oh, now yeah. is now yeah. to the point because they're 19 and five over the last 24 games, a couple of sweeps mixed in Utah coming and they're probably going to, to keep the drive alive to host again. They're mm -hmm. probably going to need to sweep that series. Dave from Tom water was when I talked about, I'd be satisfied with four and two. <laughs> that's just the, <laughs> you know, that's the, the the anxious one in me at all things at all times when right. it comes to the game of baseball. But even last night didn't start well. And the team again, persevered to fall behind and work their way back in the, I like the resilience. The, the team is showing the way they're playing. If you have any comments or thoughts about it, even a little bit of 
you know, <laughs> drama at the end. These games lately, these games are ending with people, you know, yeah. There's attitudes. There's there's fire. There's <laughs> chippiness. There's you know controversy. Yeah. Last night ended a little bit that way. And so, if you have any thoughts, comments, get you know making Mason Guerra move a foot over to get into the on deck circle, and you know, I just weird things going on. See, that's weird because they never uh, make you do that. They rarely, if ever, do. I, I've seen games where guys are two feet away from the on-deck circle. Yeah, way away. They're trying to get that look at the pitch. Exactly. In fact, it, uh, just the other day, there was a guy who was three feet yes, to the left absolutely. of the visitor's deal. And I looked at that, and I thought, oh, he's he's really trying to get a look. Absolutely. And it's rarely enforced. Mm-hmm. But the first base umpire made Mason Guerra move about a foot to get closer to the on-deck circle. And and yet in the following half inning and innings thereafter, Oregon had guys way out of it. Yeah, you can't do that. Getting as close as they can both. to the plate. And I normally wouldn't care. I may comment on it, yeah. but I wouldn't care that much about it. But once one umpire made it an issue for a Beaver player to move closer, it's gotta be then, fair. hey, come on, get that guy back in the circle. Absolutely. I was at a, a place recently, I think it was, I think it was uh, Diamondbacks, Chase Field. Is that what they call it? Mm-hmm. And that it was either there or the the Phoenix for the for the uh, Sunday game, yeah. Where the batting circle was, you know, twenty yards from the dugout because the home plate was so far away. I right. think it was Chase right. Fields. I'm like, I wouldn't want to go out there. You're two feet away from the home. You know, <laughs> oh, a I know. ball to your head, I and know. you're twenty five feet from the dugout. There are photographs of photographers that fascinate me from baseball anthology books that the, I don't know if this is actually if, if they would allow if this is during BP if it's just photo opportunities but I'm sure some of you have seen those photographs Joe DiMaggio or others at the plate with photographers in foul territory crouched a bunch of them taking photographs yeah. of the batter at the plate it looks like real live action too you see a catcher in full gear and an mm-hmm. umpire so Was there a time in life, Carl Mazdam? Was there a time in life when a photographer, okay, it's the fourth inning, this is the half inning where photographers can be all over the field. I mean, I I don't know. But I've seen photographs where photographers are all crouched down, they've got their flash bulb and all of that. For which games? Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. In a real game. There probably were because weren't there things for uh, other sports, golf and whatever, where fans are just right there. It could be. In the playing field. Yeah. Oh, and then at, at Goss or somewhere where there was really no outfield. Right. What was that story Well, recently? you know, yeah, that could be, but the, ro- the, rope, the rope, there would be yeah. a rope to right. hold fans in. Right, right. And that rope would move according to the whim of the, <laughs> okay, the Beaver defender running over, let's move the rope, fans move back. and exactly. And then Bobo Brayton would get mad because uh, the, the <laughs> Bobo, the head coach at, um, or not Bobo, Buck, uh, Buck Bailey, Buck Bailey, the yeah. pre Bailey Brayton field, Buck Bailey. When, when his guys would try to get over, they, the fans would hold their ground <laughs> and, and the security people holding the ropes wouldn't let them move in. But then when the Beaver player was pursuing a ball, okay, everybody move back. <laughs> I mean, Buck got so mad at that umpire about that for not enforcing mm-hmm. the rule consistently for both teams that the next game, uh, that same umpire at Howe Field in Eugene, that same umpire was working when Buck took his team down the road to Eugene to play at Howe Field. 
And the, in the very beginning of the game, the third base umpire, Buck, was yelling at him about something, or the guy just, you didn't make the call. Yeah. The, you know, you're, I'm just, he was still mad about what happened at Coleman Field. So a little dribbler gets hit to Buck Bailey in the third base box, and he picks the ball up and just out of anger throws it on top of Matt Court and gets ejected from the game by that guy because he was still angry from the game in Corvallis where we had this moving uh, this moving rope, rope based on fans. the situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Only in baseball. You know, they, and then you get the photographers that are virtually behind home plate. I know it. <laughs> it's strange, strange times. So, yeah, the whole on deck thing. Last night's game had interesting elements to it, but the Beavers in this, you know, Jim Wilson texted me this morning, Maybe I didn't fully understand the magnitude. You know, it's the Peter Sellers. Do you realize the enormity of what you just said? <laughs> you realize the importance of the enormousness of the win <laughs> last night and the game you call. Well, I guess I don't. I knew it was an important game to win on a midweek game. Yeah, yeah. But even so, midweek games, non-conference games, I always feel a little more relaxed going through them. Not quite even exactly. falling behind. Well, Oregon leads... Three to one. Hey, it's a beautiful <laughs> night at the ballpark. In a conference game, it, Oregon just goes up three to one. You know, that type of feeling. <laughs> right. But on a Tuesday, less so. It sounded that way. Very relaxed. Very, nice. very relaxed. Just comfortable as can be. But maybe I shouldn't have been if I if I would have understood the mag day. But Jim, Jim texted me this morning. That was a big win for, for hosting purposes, RPI purposes. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe, yeah. maybe all of you follow those. Those things closely, maybe you can call, text, and say, yeah, here's why. Jim's right, and it was big because you won three out of four on the season against a team with a higher RPI than you. Yeah. You, you don't get as much credit in the RPI for beating a team in your own ballpark, but the Oregon has the NCAA's highest, uh, highest rated RPI. They're 18 as of last night. And the for Beavers, all Pac-12 teams? Beavers were at 27, but... Oregon 18, Stanford 19, Beavers at 27. And it's not much movement if you win at home? Right. That's too bad. It is. But anytime you beat a team higher than you, it should be yeah. good movement. But the, the home and away does make a big difference in that. But it was a good win. It was a really good win, and in the end, a dominant win. And in the end, too, a little bit of the old Civil War rivalry feeling that has gone on, these two teams began to play each other 116 years ago. In that year, one game was in Eugene and the other was at Coleman Field. That was the first year of the series, the two teams playing baseball in 1907. Mm. One in Eugene, I'm not sure what the field was, maybe how, I don't know. I don't know where Oregon had an old baseball field. But for the Beavers, Coleman, I mean, the, the yeah. ballpark where it is now, the first time they hosted Oregon, was in 1907. So they've been at this thing a long time. And even with the 28-year hiatus, they've played each other a lot, the bitterness, the rivalry. But the Beavers have had, and I mentioned this last night, out of a little bit out of, well, just being happy the Beavers won again. But Jack Riley finished his run 28-12, and the Beavers have come back are 45-24 and since the reinstatement. Mm. So... I think I I don't have I think that's seventy three to thirty six Beavers 
over the last whatever many years Jack compiled over his last seven. I think he went 28 and 12. Mm. And the Beavers have come back since the reinstatement. 45 and 45 to 24. And eight of nine? Yeah, I believe that. That's what it is. Well, it's, so uh, good. It's good. The time they built and re- redid things was when Oregon State was beginning national prominence. And I remember, and, I, and I've always said and have said, giving proper, I think, proper credit where it's due, Oregon got good and relevant pretty quickly, I yeah. thought. I was surprised. I yeah. thought it would take them longer. They had a losing season in year one in 09, many games under 500, mm-hmm. but the following year were in a regional two years in. Well, they so, had Horton. They paid the big they bucks. Had, they paid the big they, bucks. They, they spent a lot of money on the, a brand did. new facility. They that, did. As you say, fell out of the sky, mm-hmm. and there they have uh, one of the nicest facilities in the in the league. And the Nike brand. The and, brand. The coach. Okay, yeah. fine. But yeah, you know Horton got him into a winning situation, and they've they've continued that. They still lead in the conference standings, but uh, mm-hmm. you get three out of four in the series, right. and that means a ton. It does, and I think there was a little frustration on the other guy's part for losing again, mm-hmm. and that may have led to a little bit of you know whatever was going on if at the end of the game. All I don't I don't know anything yeah. except for what I hear from Doug. Um, TJ had video. And if it was from the video of Ryan Brown just doing a salute. Or Ben Ferrer. Or Ben Ferrer mm-hmm. doing just a little salute to finish off the game. <laughs> it was nothing. It was mild. It was nothing. It wasn't, I mean, you know, it was, uh, okay, I don't know how chippy it was. I wasn't there. Yeah, and it wasn't for, I've talked to people who were closer to it. I can't hear it as much with the closed window now, and even with open windows yeah. with the headsets yeah. on. You don't hear a lot of that crosstalk and stuff that goes on. But people who were closer said hey, it really wasn't hmm. out. Of, it, it wasn't extraordinarily hostile last night. But in the end, whatever was going on with Ben Ferrer, one, two, three inning and the little salute and yeah. wave goodbye, yeah. that rankled the Oregon people a little bit. And, you know, but, but it was clearly there was a bit of a confrontation between Mitch and Mark Wazikowski. Mark coming across at pointed towards Ben or said something yeah. and, and Mitch kind of quickly got up and said, Hey, that's my domain. I'll take care of it. Right. And they, there was a little almost chest to chest between the two of them and in the handshake line. You got it. You got to do a lot to make Mitch mad because he's one of the most amiable characters. Yes, he is. And I know, I know he is friends and wants to be friends in good spirit with all of his colleagues in, mm-hmm. in the conference. For the most part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody's a competitor, yeah, right? But I don't, I don't see any, anywhere where he would seek anything out. So that's very interesting. Uh, I don't yeah. know what happened, but that uh, uh, makes for good radio. Let's take a break. If you have any texts about last night's game, any other elements, aspects to it, feel free, 497-5356, or a quick call, which we can get before we visit with Jeff Manning of the Oregonian. We may slot someone in at 12.05 today. But for now, it's open. 12.30, Kate Maxim, after our really enjoyable conversation with Gabe Winkler yesterday, will visit with Kate about what's going on within the Oregon State women's rowing program. Uh, No show uh, Marino tomorrow. We'll we'll be uh, off with Mariner baseball, but then back Friday with an extravaganza, dear. In the park. At uh, 1.30. Uh, Southwest First Avenue, downtown Albany, Weatherford Thompson, attorneys at law, Weather, formerly Weatherford Thompson, Colgill Black and Schultz, attorneys <laughs> at law, hosting us for our 
annual picnic and look forward to seeing you down there with a free lunch and tickets to give away and prizes, uh, gift cards from Albany merchants downtown. It'll be a lot of fun, as it always is. That's Friday from 11 to 1. Open phones, 497-5356. Thanks for joining us on 1240 Joe Radio. Locally owned and operated Lifetime Gutters does more than just new gutter installations with guaranteed quality craftsmanship at competitive prices backed by a lifetime warranty. Lifetime Gutters can also protect and extend the life of your roof with regular moss treatments and maintenance. Does your home, gutters, and sidewalks need a spring cleaning? Lifetime Gutters can handle that, too. Serving residential and commercial properties in the Mid-Valley, call Lifetime Gutters today to schedule your no-cost estimate online at lifetime-gutters.com. Futon Man isn't just about futons anymore. In addition to futons, futon frames, and covers, Futon Man now also carries platform beds, bunk beds, and can even make custom mattresses for your RV. So if you're expecting out-of-town guests and you're not sure where they're going to sleep, you could head on a bedroom to the house. Or an easier solution would be to stop by Futon Man. Two miles north of Corvallis on Highway 99 or online at futon-man.com. He shifts Bucky Irving 1-0. to zero. They just did get the snap. Hi, this is James Rawls, defensive lineman of the Pac-12's number one defense, the Oregon State Beavers. Ongoing visits to rejuvenation for cryotherapy treatments has provided me with long-lasting muscle and joint recovery, sharpens my mental focus, and elevate the endurance needed for me to perform at the highest level on game days. Go to rejuvenationcorvallis.com to book your appointments today so you are always at your best. Go Beavs. He's going for it, and the Beavers get home and sack him back at the 44. James Rawls. Leading off this inning for your tax and wealth management team is David Mendenhall. Batting second, Bill Heck. And batting third, Robert Berry. It's always important to have a talented lineup. The same is true if you need some advice on personal or business tax planning or just some help with financial strategy. With over 40 years in business, Tax and Wealth Management has the experience you need to hit that home run. Call or stop by Tax and Wealth Management in Corvallis, your hometown tax team, and start your journey on the road to success. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Parker. We recently had the need to replace some major appliances, and I'm delighted to report that we called Brandon and his team at Kellenberger Appliance in Lebanon. We couldn't be happier with our experience. They answered all of our questions, put us in the best deal, and promptly delivered and installed a new washer and dryer. When you are in need of an appliance, I strongly encourage you to call Kellenberger Appliance. Visit kellenbergers.com or stop by Kellenberger Appliance at 21 North Main Street in Lebanon. A big thank you from the Parkers to Kellenberger Appliance. Unified Insurance Group is your local independent insurance agency in Corvallis. They represent numerous insurance companies and specialize in auto, home, and business insurance. See Mike Eves, Taylor Starr, and Tom Worth. They'll help find an insurance plan that works best for you. If you're looking for auto, home, or business insurance, see the Unified Insurance Group, 320 Southwest 3rd Street in downtown Corvallis. They're your hometown team, always putting you first. The Joe Beaver Show, Mike Parker with John Warren. Jeff Manning from the Oregonian will join us to talk about accuracies, inaccuracies, and take on the role of film critic about the film Air. And a little bit more, too, about the passing, not within the past year, of uh, Dan Wyden from Wyden and Kennedy and the brilliance of those ad campaigns, Bo Knows, Just Do It, the Barkley, I Am Not a Role Model. And they, that was a fertile time in the 90s, late 80s and 90s. Yeah. For 
Nike and its uh, relationship with Wyden and Kennedy and those and amazing, those unforgettable ads. Yeah. yeah, and the and yeah, Spy, uh, Mike and the Michael Jordan Spike Lee. I mean, there were a lot of things going on in that era. But before we do that, do we want to sneak in a call from John on the Downward Dog phone line? Hello, John. Hello, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, John. Uh, I was at the game last night and continue to be impressed with most of the people who were leaders. Ferrari was great, of course. But the question I had was about uh, the, the two before Ferrari. Mejia was one. And what's the name of the other guy, the other freshman that was really good last night? Uh, Mejia, Aiden Jimenez. Yeah. Aiden Jimenez. Yes. Those, mm-hmm. those two have impressed me all year. And they are big, strong guys. Yes. And I wonder, and they're just freshmen, I wonder if there be any thought about them maybe going a starting role next year? I would think so, yes. Yeah. I, I, that would, that, I think that's going to evolve that way. You know, Luke Heimlich came in as a relief pitcher. Matt Boyd was a relief pitcher when, earlier in their careers. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's probably going to move. I don't know who or which of those guys. But, yeah, ultimately I would expect to see one or a couple of these young arms to end up being moved into a weekend rotation. Yeah, anyway, those two have really impressed me. So I, was, I wonder, do you kind of have the same position that there's an awful lot of potential? Yes, yes. Uh, there's some really bright young arms on this team. Nelson Keljo's another one, too. We can't – he hasn't had as much – He's not quite as polished yet or refined as some of the other, but in terms of just a lively bolt of an arm, Nelson may have the strongest of all, and as he continues to develop the craft and learn how to command the zone, he has a chance to be a Josh Osich type, and Josh got to the big leagues. Yeah, okay. Okay, thanks, Rod. Thanks a lot, John. On that note, you got a quick yeah. get some uh, questions, and then we'll see what we can do before we visit with Jeff Manning. Is there a certification for scorekeepers to make sure records are somewhat accurate? Hits, errors, etc. Oh, uh, you mean like who? Like he, people who score games yeah. are they, in a sense, vetted, certified? I mean, I I don't know the answer. Uh, I don't that. either. I just know that Hank ha- gets someone yes. to do it, and then they communicate in the box. Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a an, an official scores like you, know, you have to pass, you have to pass a, a test. test. I don't know that. I don't think so though. Can a pitcher step off to reset the pitch clock? If so, how many times? I think I, he gets a warning. I think he can do it once, <laughs> once in an inning. I Who believe. watches the clock to determine if the batter is in the box uh, in time for the pitch? I think that's the home plate umpire. I do believe it's the home plate umpire. These are all new things to all of us, so I'm not sure yeah. I'm answering any of these questions properly. Does the pitcher have to throw to a base after making a move to second base? I've been... I've heard yes or no on broadcast, yet last night it didn't happen on one occasion. Yes. No, I, I've, I've been trying to check up on that. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't believe he has to. He can only step off once. That's the, he can only step off once. And I've fake, seen pitchers and fake throws. He make can a do, throw like a second. He can do that once, but he has to throw the other times, and it has to be perceived as a legitimate attempt to get the runner and not just a token toss, and that's why in the umpire's judgment last night, the pitcher that whirled and threw, Justin Thorstenson, did so just that it wasn't, an, you know, Again, so much of this is subjective. That's why we're trying to get an umpire on soon to talk about it. Anyway, what well, does the pitch indicator read to the pitcher and players? Is it just pitch number or also a location? 
I think that I think it's a pitch low. I think that what the number indicator has has it all. You, there's an element of memory perhaps involved, but the catcher I think also will, in a sense, certify that okay, this is the pitch we're calling, and and maybe there's then a visual location given by the catcher. These are the chain of command. I I don't fully understand yet. I've asked those questions. And haven't I don't have a clear in my mind yet, to be honest with you. I just and don't. on that, can the offense start using it to call offense, bunts, steals, whatever? Yeah, maybe. That's a they probably could. These are all good questions. What is the pitch indicator? And they're is that new, what the pitcher has. Yeah, well, what well, you see, I'm looking at a watch that has the oh yeah, the yeah code yeah. Yeah. that's coming in that everybody gets. Everybody in the field can look at their wrist and well, say. Well, then it's a code, and then whatever the code is has like a paragraph of what. The details of what it is. Yes. That they're either supposed to memorize. Remember or have affirmed by a catcher's confirming right. signal, right. at least between the pitcher and the, the batter, battery mate. I'm going to have to go through that sometime. Time doesn't allow, unfortunately, in life to just, <laughs> I haven't been able to, to yeah. learn all of that. I ask questions every time I get to the ballpark, but the coaches are busy with BP and infield, and they're not just sitting around Whistling name that tune been, in the movie The Natural. Is it a new phenomenon? A yeah, new, it's new pretty technology? new. It's pretty new. Yes, and therefore new to me, new to and and how it all gets transmitted and yeah. what exactly they're looking for and at. Those are all great questions, though. Johnny, let's take a break and come back. We'll shift gears a little bit with Jeff Manning of the Oregonian. If any of you have seen the film, air are planning on seeing the film, air would not in any wise want to dissuade you and say, oh, you didn't like that movie because it's inaccurate. <laughs> it was, the Dick Oldfield told us it's not a documentary, and it isn't. And Dick, Dick worked at Nike for decades and could see glaring inaccuracies but still enjoyed it. Yeah. So we'll come back with Jeff Manning from the Oregonian next on 1240 Joe Radio. Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation change? Hi, I'm former Oregon State athlete Tim Ewis, your Corvallis Edward Jones financial advisor. When we work together, we'll focus on what's important to you. We'll use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And we'll partner to help your strategy stay on track. Contact me today, 541-758-8245. Edward Jones, member SIPC. When you think of Albans, you think plumbing. And when you think of plumbing, you think water. Hi, this is Katie Albin. Some plumbing projects don't have anything to do with water. At Albans Plumbing, we also work with natural gas and propane lines. So if you need a gas line for home heating, cooking, or for a gas water heater, give us a call. At Albans Plumbing, plumbing's all we do. Call 754-8282, It is a pleasure to welcome to the Joe Beaver Show. Next hour, Kate Maxim, and we may slip in the umpire. I'm hoping to reach out to Jim Joyce. That'd be great. To talk about the, the play from the end of the Beavers game against Arizona from the perspective of a major league umpire and kind of bizarre scenarios that come up in baseball more often than any other game. and. Mm-hmm all of the aspects to a particular call. So we'll see if we can c- connect with Jim Joyce today, former Major League umpire and a longtime Portland resident, as is our next guest, Jeff Manning, who covers business, power, and money for the Oregonian mm-hmm. business and finance, health, and sports on occasion. I see in one of the profile pieces for our guest, 
basketball, college basketball, and this sort of uh, montage of, of subjects that Jeff Manning covers. So basketball is a piece of it and wrote a, an in-depth story a few years ago on the loyalty game on how shoe company money reshaped youth basketball from about five years ago. Great investigative reporter and recently film critic in a sense too as he went out and visited with Nike executives about the film Air, which has played mostly to positive reviews, I think, from movie critics. Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Air, and the telling of the story of how Nike landed the shoe contract with Michael Jordan. Jeff Manning, kind enough to join us. Jeff, good morning. Thanks for your time today. How are you? I'm well, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. You know that you write in your article that appeared recently in the Oregonian, quote, the film, which premiered Wednesday, is powerful vindication for the 83-year-old Sonny Vaccaro, who has long felt he didn't get the credit he deserved for landing Jordan and helping to build the world's best-known sports marketing campaign. You quote Sonny in your story, Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon in the film. Sonny, quote, I didn't feel like I needed vindication. I just wanted someone to tell the truth, unquote. So I want to start right there. It's a big question and takes in a lot of issues. But did the film tell the truth or even get close to it or what, in your view? I think it, I think it came close in terms of at least letting the public know that Sonny was a major player in the whole deal. Um, I thought it was inaccurate in that it gave him way too much credit in terms of uh, the marketing campaign. And uh, so, you know, I would say that uh, I've always liked Sonny, and he's just the character. He's just the ultimate basketball character, and it it, it did make me sad that uh, he had left Nike under some real bad circumstances, bad blood, and uh, and he was just he was a major player for the company, uh, and he was sort of written out of the history books. Yeah, and yet I wonder, too, in your wide-ranging story, you quote Rick Long, who was a good friend of Peter Moore's, the the shoe designer and maker depicted in an odd way by the actor Matthew Marr in in the film Air. You quote Rick Long as saying, quote, with Rob Strasser and with Rob and Peter gone, Sonny told the story he wanted, unquote. Is there some truth in that? Yes, there certainly is. I mean, I think that... I'm no critic, but uh, and I love Jason Bateman, but uh, you know his portrayal of Strasser as some sort of uh, cubicle monkey, cautious and uh, overwrought and always nervous about what management's going to think, was that that is so far from reality. It's uh, it's not even it's unconscionable, hmm. and it would have been so much more entertaining to have an absolute raving wild man hmm. like Ron Strasser in that role. I just don't get it. And uh, as far as Peter Moore, my friend Rick Long was uh, really offended by that because Moore was, you know, he wasn't a mad scientist and he, and he was not spend all his time in a lab coat. Uh, he was not some eccentric dude that, you know, hung out in the basement. Um, so, you know, why film directors and, and producers think they need to do that i I have no idea but you know i'm not a film critic yeah and the 
Should we take what Howard White portrayed entertainingly, I thought, on the film by Chris Tucker? I enjoyed the character. I don't know how close that was to reality, never having met or visited Howard White. Howard seems to, have, of the Nike executives, former and so on, that you quote in your excellent story recently, Jeff, seemed to really like it and kind of almost said to all of us, nitpicking at everything, relax. It's a, it depicts the spirit of the times and the story fairly well. I mean, is Howard right about that in your big picture view? Yes, he is. Um, and, you know, you're exactly right. Um, when you're this close to it, it's easy to lose perspective. And, uh, you know, the producers, including, uh, you know, Affleck and Damon, they just won't, they want to make money and they want to tell a story. And uh, they chose the way. I, I don't know if the truth would have been any less entertaining, but uh, <laughs> that's the way they did it. It's their money, and they're entitled to do whatever they want, I guess. Jeff Manning, our guest from the Oregonian. And Jeff, this is John. I, all of that said, I mean, we've established, okay, that, you know, it's not what it was. But I, I do have a question about the depiction of Phil Knight. Uh, in that it make, made him look like he had no power and had to worry about the board. Yet, through the years, through the decades, growing up with all of this, he's made out to be the king, the god, the guy that can do anything he wants. Was that just for Hollywood purposes, or was there some truth? Because I don't know business that a CEO has to worry about the board on a $250,000 decision. Well, remember now, it was it was in the mid-'80s, and it was a different era in terms of the athletic shoe business. Uh, Nike was not the completely dominant machine that it is today. It was, uh, you know, it was the time when Reebok was coming on strong, and, uh, you know, the, the diversity, the diversification moves by Nike to go beyond running was still sort of struggling. You know, basketball was sort of a different world for them. Thanks to Sonny, they had made huge inroads with the, co- the college coaches, and they were cutting deals left and right with them. To uh, this was before they were doing school deals, and so they would do the, all these endorsement deals with coaches, who could then tell their team, the team members, you will be wearing this brand. So that was working for them, but they needed something in the NBA, and uh, they weren't really a player there. Jeff Manning joining us on the Joe Beaver Show from the Oregonian has written many things, but most recently sort of the point of departure for us in the conversation, his article on the film Air. We've talked to Dick Oldfield, who worked for Nike for a long time. Dick and his wife, Karen, said they thoroughly enjoyed it, but felt like it was, quote-unquote, a work of fiction, an entertaining film. The one piece, though, that's kind of the linchpin of the whole film, anyway, is this trip that Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro takes to Wilmington, North Carolina to talk to Mrs. Jordan Dolores, played beautifully by the great actress uh, Viola Davis. Now, you and your story say that Rob Strasser's widow, Julie, said it was Rob that made that trip. I mean, that means if that's true, that's an utterly different kind of story. Where, Where do you come out on that, Jeff? You know, that is a real... One, I, I I think that Julie to me has a lot of credibility, uh, but so does Sonny, and uh, I I don't re- I don't really know who to believe. I think there I mean I know that there are others who told me the same thing, 
but that was Strasser who made that trip. Um, and so, you know, that's why I wrote what I did, that uh, it, on, the, on that one issue, which, as you, you're exactly right, it is a central moment in the film. Um, and, you know, I think it's disputed whether that's accurate or not. And I tend to think that it probably was Strasser who made that trip. <laughs> but as I also said in the story, I don't think you need... Sonny still deserves a lot of credit. I mean, it never would, it, none of that would have happened without the car really going out on a limb and correctly making the call that Jordan was going to be unlike any other athlete. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Do you happen to know in, uh, you know, putting your article together, uh, how much cooperation there was with Nike and with the producers of the film to put all of this together? Um, <clears throat> I have tried to get at that angle, and uh, it's tough to get anything out of Nike about anything, for me anyway. And so I really don't know how much cooperation there was. I think that uh, that would have been very complicated because of the, uh, something they don't touch upon at all in the film is that the subsequent bad blood between all, just about all of the principals in this film and the company. They all had, most of them had brought nasty fallings out, falling out with Nike. And uh, so if the producers had gone to Nike and said, hey, read the script, and they read the script about a bunch of people that they, you know, have a long, complicated history with, and they, I don't know what they would have done. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's a really good question, Johnny, and that I was wondering about too. You're, you're right about that. The, the, the really sad, the, the unfortunate part is not after the time and the events depicted in this film. It wasn't long after that Rob Strasser left and Peter Moore, you wrote, came along shortly thereafter. And according to Donald Katz's book, Just Do It, uh, which came out around 1994, I read, reread that this this morning, uh, Jeff. Quote, Michael Jordan was on the verge of leaving Nike to form his own marketing company in association with Rob Strasser and designer Peter Moore. Mm. Quote, unquote. I mean, you remember it that way, too, or at least know that to be true. I do know that to be true. Um, I, you know, one of the great tragedies for me in covering this industry for as long as I have is that I never met Strasser. He, he died before I really started covering the industry. So... I, I, all I've done is hear about him from everybody uh, as the hard-driving marketing genius of the company, and uh, but I never met him. Mm. Uh, but I do know that Jordan throws a lot of allegiance to him, and as, as did Vicaro. And uh, it was they were close to pulling off some sort of deal, and uh, it never happened. Sonny was fired in 1991 also by Phil. Phil fired him, and you, you quote Sonny as saying to this day, or at least not a quote, but you said Vaccaro told you, he still doesn't know why. Do, do you have a feeling why or know anything about that backstory? This movie, this wonderful show that ends beautifully and happily, and not long thereafter, as you pointed out, these great departures occur, and, and Phil fired Sonny. Do you know why? Uh, I don't think I'll ever really know why. Uh, there's a lot of theories, um, and uh, 
you know, depending on what side of history you're on, are you pro Sunny or pro Phil? That's that's which version of the story you're you're going to tend to believe. I don't know. I have no idea what's true. Okay, but you said earlier that you like Sonny. So you've had some dealings with him. And I wonder even in your article that you and Bruce Schmidt wrote five years ago on the grassroots, you know, the shoe money, shoe company money, reshaping youth basketball. Right. You know, what, did you talk to Sonny for that story then all those years later? I mean, he was, he was the original grassroots guy, wasn't he? And, and how long have you kind of known Sonny and followed his career? Uh, boy, I've known him. It seems like forever. I, I remember uh, back in the day when the newsroom was huge and we could afford things like this. They they sent me to the NBA All Star game when uh, I remember it was one. It may have been Allen Iverson's rookie season, and he was quite the sensation. And I ran into Sonny back there, who I only talked to on the phone at that point. And I was I was having some complications with my hotel and. Said, well, come with me, and he uh, took me up to uh, this quiet little brownstone uh, hotel up in the Upper East Side, and I didn't—I didn't know New York at all. And I, I'll never forget the way that he went out of his way to give me a hand, and because uh, I was clearly out of my element, and I really appreciated that. And he's a genuinely nice guy, and he's a genuine character. He's the real deal when it comes to. A genius first-time Jeff, you you also recently. This is on a different subject, but in a sense, it's the same in terms of what Sonny recognized about Jordan and that part of the. I, maybe that's the most accurate thing that I'm sensing that the film depicts. That Sonny was, hey, we need this. He's he is it. He's Michael Jordan, and and we can build a brand and a company around a whole line around this guy. Now, Strasser may have ran with it and marketed and promoted it just as much, but Sonny was right there in, in the beginnings with respect to understanding the potential importance of Jordan. But what about, and you've written about, and you, I heard you on a podcast recently sharing thoughts. Well, I'm not even sure who your interlocutor was on that, but you were talking about the passing of Dan Wyden, of Wyden and Kennedy. How, what, what about the marriage of that? ad agency with Nike in those times and how, how good they were for one another and how big a part of the growth was that what the advertising and marketing people were doing. Well, you know, they always say that success has a thousand fathers and failure has, has none. But, uh, so, you know, does Peter Moore deserve the credit for the designs of Jumpman and the winged logo? Yes. Does he deserve credit for some of the effective advertising probably, but so does Wyden and Kennedy, and they realized what they were on to, and, and they made him sort of, well, they made him famous, they got him cast with cartoon characters, and uh, they they leveraged him for all his work, you know, they put him with uh, Spike Lee, and uh, it all sort of gelled. Uh, you know, Jordan probably, uh, Jordan could make any ad effective, um, and they uh, they really realized that and used them heavily. Who was it then that, I, it's probably an off-told story, but I'm not sure I could really attribute the, the amazing phrase that captured a spirit of a time, just do it. Is that a, a Wyden and Kennedy, a Dan Wyden creation, Jim Riswold? I mean, who, 
Who who kind of where did that come from? Just do it. I think it was Wyden. Wyden always said it was him. And okay. he uh, he told me that he was uh, it was a very late it was an all nighter at the at the office and he he had fallen asleep and uh, supposedly had just come to him as he woke up that uh, just do it. That's the that, that's the phrase. Mm-hmm. And others, she's told others, or he did tell others before he passed away, that uh, he was inspired by Gary Gilmore, the, uh, <laughs> the serial killer, who, uh, as they were as they were getting him out of the cell to go to the execution chamber, he said, "Let's do it." <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> yeah. That that was yeah. depicted in the film. In in the Gary Gilmore film? No, in this film. Oh, in the movie air. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 it does come up. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that, that is true. Hey, Jeff, the last thing, uh, and, and we don't have time to, to, to explore this, and maybe somewhere down the road we will, but you, you do have a great interest in bat. You went to the University of Washington, from what I understand. You worked at the Bulletin in Bend, got to the Oregonian in 94, away from that for a while in the political realm, but then back as an investigative reporter. And part of your, your work in that line brought you to Grassroots in Basketball, the article that I've referenced. What did you discover then? What what were you trying to uncover or find? And where are we now, five years later, with Nil and all this stuff going on in the world? I am so pissed off about Nil, or not NIL or whatever you want to yeah. call it. They, they've ended the, the, the traditional basketball scandal as I knew and loved them. Uh, it seems like <laughs> anything goes now. Yes. And uh, it seems like... The folks who used to be amateurs in high school and collegiate players are in no rush to try to be in the NBA because they're doing just fine financially now. Yep, it's just a brave new world. Uh, the whole the whole loyalty game story that Brad Schmidt and I worked on for so long, the story of how Marvin Bagley went from the the mean streets of South Phoenix to uh, to a really beautiful gated community in Southern California. No one would have cared about that now. Mm-hmm. It would have been part of an NIL contract. <laughs> it's true. You may be, you may, as you say to, you know, you, you, you're not real happy about it. I'll clean up your phrase a little bit for, for radio. Mm-hmm. You're not happy about it, but is it above board now? Now, but, but won't there be scandals that can be uncovered within the cheating realm because still you're not supposed to use it for recruiting inducements and, no and all of that and tampering with other people at other schools. Can, can there not still be some scandal stories to write? We can only hope. <laughs> uh, I, I, it seems like any, anytime there's that much money flying around, uh, there will be excess and, you know, rule breaking and maybe law breaking. Um, yeah, I just, uh, it's fascinating what's what's happened, and it's it's just stunning to me that the NCAA was just like, all right, we're tired of this crap, whatever. <laughs> well, it's funny, you're right, and we got to go, and really appreciate your time, Jeff, and I hope we can talk again down the road, but the NCAA fought and fought and fought and fought, no, no compensation, nothing, nothing. Finally, when the ruling, I mean, okay, <laughs> I mean, you're right, they gave up the fight pretty quickly, and anything goes now, it feels like. That is interesting in its own uh, in its own right. 
Great to talk By to you, way, Jeff. Mike, yes. there, is a, there is a connection between these two stories. Sonny worked with uh, Ed O'Bannon. Right. And, uh, and uh, it was Ed O'Bannon's fight against the video game company that was put an instrumental in this whole thing. Yeah, and Sonny says, quote, you say that's his proudest achievement, his proudest moment in his career is, is yeah. advising Ed in that class action suit that opened this door all up. So he's proud of that. Like I say, uh, when things matter in basketball, generally you'll see some of the terrible <laughs> working in the background somewhere. That's, uh, hey, Jeff, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Hope we can do it again down the road. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. Jeff Manning of the Oregonian. We break on 1240 Joe Radio. Stargazer Premier Florist in Corvallis knows that flowers are a beautiful way to make mothers feel loved and appreciated. And they want to help deliver them the best arrangement possible. Choose from Stargazer's wide selection of Mother's Day flower arrangements, plants, and baskets, and they'll deliver a beautiful, unique gift right on time to the mothers in your life. Stop in, call, or view Stargazer's selection of Mother's Day arrangements online at StargazersPremierFlorist.com. Stargazer's Premier Florist, located at 925 Northwest Circle Boulevard in Corvallis. Locally owned and operated for over 30 years, people in the Mid-Valley have been going to Corvallis Floor Covering. They thank their many friends and customers for your continued support and look forward to working with you on your next remodeling project. Browse through their large showroom with a beautiful selection of carpet, countertops, sheet vinyl, linoleum, tile, hard surface floors, and window coverings from all the popular brands. Corvallis Floor Covering, corner of 2nd and Van Buren downtown, or log on to CorvallisFloorCovering.com. Shop local, shop Corvallis Floor Covering, and go Beeves. Kubota LX Series tractors are the number one rated tractor brand for durability and owner experience in the United States and are the answer to having quality, comfort, and versatility. Kubota LX Series tractors are four-wheel drive and come with easy-to-operate three-range hydrostatic transmission. See Lynn Benton Tractor and Tangent or go to KubotaUSA.com for more information. Benton Tractor, we're still all right, our thanks to Jeff Manning from the Oregonian for joining us here in this first hour. Coming up uh, at 1230, Kate Maxim will join us uh, from Oregon State Women's Rowing, where they pulled more donations on Damn Proud Day last Wednesday than any other program, uh, sports program, that is, at Oregon State. And the top, I think, five, five or six in the lists of giving went all to academic uh, issues. And then... Women's rowing was next in line as far as the top 10. Uh, tomorrow, Weatherford Thompson, attorneys at law. Um, Joe Beaver Roadshow, lunch, pizza, cookies. We always have a good time out there. And drawings, we hope to see you out there. Coming up, maybe Jim Joyce at 12.05. We'll see. But Kate Maxim at 12.30 here on 12.40 Joe Radio. Here's the microphone. Is this thing on? This is KEJO Corvallis. Everybody hear me? We're on in five. And QID. 12.40 Joe Radio. This is a Bloomberg Money Minute. As expected, the Federal Reserve voted for another quarter percent hike in its benchmark lending rate, but there was a big change in a statement it put out along with that decision. This will be the last rate hike, at least for now. After 10 interest rate hikes just since the start of last year, investors like hearing that, and that's why stocks are moving higher right now. The Dow up a quarter percent, the S&P half a percent higher, and the Nasdaq's up 1%. Mortgage rates, they edged lower last week, the first decline in three weeks. The Mortgage Bankers Association says a 30-year fixed-rate loan now averages 6.5%. Despite that, mortgage applications were down last week. Private sector hiring rose to nearly 300,000 new workers last month, twice what was forecast. 
The biggest gains in leisure and hospitality. Think hotels, bars, restaurants, and amusement parks. But after four decades, the struggling weight loss and nutrition company Jenny Craig is going to shut down for good. It failed to secure more much-needed financing. Tom Busby, Bloomberg Radio. Summer, with all of its events and parties, is on the way. Call Forks and Corks today and make your reservation. Large or small, Forks and Corks Catering will make your event spectacular. From sit-down dinners to buffets or delicious bites, they'll work with you to choose a menu based on taste and budget. Forks and Corks will ensure an enjoyable experience for you and your guests. A spectacular symphony of sensory delight. View their menu and list of venues online. Forks and Corks Catering, events designed to delight. Catering to the Willamette Valley since 2011. They're in position to try to go for it here, and they will, and it's an option, and Nix is tackled short of the first down! Hi, this is Ryan Cooper Jr., defensive back for Oregon State Beavers. We earned the leader of the pack by playing fast and playing together. You could be a leader by committing to Damn Nation to help all Oregon State athletes prepare for their future. Go to damnnationcollective.com to give today. Be a leader of the pack together. Go Beavers. For it inside the 30, and it's Oregon State football at the Oregon 28. Equipped from front to rear with industry-leading, easy-to-use features, Kubota B-Series tractors are the total package. With high horsepower and excellent durability and implements that easily attach and detach, Kubota B-Series tractors can do anything in any season. See Lynn Benton Tractor and Tangent or go to KubotaUSA.com for more information. Feel the power at Power Honda in Albany, where quality, service, and peace of mind meet you as you walk through the door at 4120 Sandham Highway in Albany. Power Honda is family-owned and offers new vehicles and over a 1,000 used vehicles to choose from. Power Honda has a Google review of 4.9 stars, offers financing for everyone, and knows how to treat their customers' needs. Honda. Come feel the power at Power Honda in Albany. Hi, I'm Dennis Silvers, the golf guru, here with another Golf Minute to help you develop a perfect pivot. Many golfers think that they are turning their hips on their backswing, but in fact you're just swaying, which is one of the biggest power killers. You need to always keep in mind that you are swinging around your spine. The key to body stability and a powerful coil is creating resistance in the lower body to prevent swaying. Here's what to do. While swinging to the top, maintain the angle of your right leg, which should be slightly tilted towards the target, and maintain the flex established at address. If you straighten your right leg, that will cause you to sway. Holding this angle and flex keeps your weight over the inside of your right foot and encourages that perfect pivot. So remember, to get that perfect pivot, stay away from the sway, or just remember this, swing around your spine and all will be fine. For the Golf Minute, I'm Dennis Silvers. Hey, I could be a jingle writer. For adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who are candidates for systemic or phototherapy, now there's SkyRizzy, Rizinkizumab Rizza, a prescription-only 150-milligram injection. With SkyRizzy, three out of four people achieve 90% clearer skin at four months, and SkyRizzy is just four doses a year after two starter doses. Nothing in me go hand in hand. Nothing on my skin, that's my new place. Nothing is 
Don't use if allergic to Skyrizi. Serious allergic reactions and an increased risk of infections or a lower ability to fight them may occur. Before treatment, your doctor should check for infection and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms, such as fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, or if you plan to or recently received a vaccine. With SkyRizzy, you could achieve 90% clearer skin. Ask your doctor about the number one dermatologist prescribed biologic in psoriasis and visit SkyRizzy.com or call 1-866-SKYRizzy to learn more. They're coming from everywhere. Seems to be a great deal of traffic here for country road, it's sick. Corvallis, Oregon. To see the total eclipse of the sun. to Talking about the sky, McIntyre. Mike McIntyre and the Buffaloes are coming, amongst many others. Seems to be a great deal of traffic here for country road, I think. Sight worth seeing. I know how you must feel. Yes, but not everyone's on board. And look at that sky. You look at it. But for everyone else, excitement is sky high for life in Corvallis. The skies are amazing. There seems to be a lot happening in it all the time. If it's happening, you'll hear about it on the Joe Beaver Show. I'm expecting something special from there. Keep your eyes skinned. I want reports. Oh, you'll get reports all right. The best reports on the Joe Beaver Show with John Warren and Mike Parker. Nothing I can say, total eclipse of the heart. And away we go with the Joe Beaver Show on 1240 Joe Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon. Mike is on the phone right now with Jim Joyce. I think he is going to get him as a guest. So we'll uh, hopefully be speaking with a former Major League Baseball umpire from, from Portland. Jim Joyce, to talk about a number of things that have come up, especially from the Arizona series, that last play on Sunday, so on and so forth. Anyway, welcome to the program. Uh, got a lot to uh, to start this hour with. Just got an interesting uh, text from Robert Hirsch, and I, I, I was talking to Mike about it, Robert, immediately after that interview. The last two interviews we've done, uh, yesterday with Harold Reynolds, and then just now, with Jeff Manning of the Oregonian were really hard to understand. They were what we call in the business in the mud, really low muffled. You couldn't hear it very well. That's not on our end. That's on the phone callers end, and there is nothing we can do about it. Um, no matter the greatest uh, audio uh, processing in the world. And it's just hard to hear. So Robert, you're correct. It was difficult to hear nothing we can do about it. And, uh, but I'm concerned about it. I don't want that to happen, especially when we get big, big time guests. Let's hope our next guest, whom I'm about to call, yes, you are, will actually uh, have a decent phone line, and it'll sound good. And he Mike's... just called us back. His name is Jim Joyce. He is related to the guy I asked. That's the first question I asked Jim when I met him years ago. Jim Joyce, James Joyce. I think he's Jim Joyce the third. This, yeah, he goes, yeah, I'm related. The, so I that night, I think, at a Portland Beavers baseball game, I said, well, here's Jim Joyce behind the plate, a portrait of an umpire as a young man, Jim Joyce, one of the, a book I was required to read in college and still like, a portrait of the artist as a young man, James Joyce, uh, it, author of Ulysses, famous author, Kim right now, oh, yeah, 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 James Joyce, yeah, yeah. James Joyce. But he's related to the guy somehow, Ooh, some way, but you're going to cool. call that number on the Downward Dog phone line. Thank you, Johnny. And we're going to have Major League umpire Jim Joyce, who retired after the 2016 season in the big leagues from 1987 through 2016. 
in three World Series, three All-Star Games, umpired many division series and league championship series. Jim Joyce will join us. He met his wife when uh, doing PCL games uh, in uh, the late 80s. And one of the one of those guys who, when I met Jim, and such a nice person, and, and our paths crossed briefly in the Pacific Coast League in the late 80s, but he was kind enough to occasionally join our old shows back in Portland. He and Dale Scott and others, I'm sure yeah, you I remember, remember sure. some of the conversation. So it is, in light of the bizarre play on Sunday and the ending and uh, referencing during that broadcast and last night's broadcast, uh, Fred Merkel's boner from 1908, not touching second base, which lives forever in infamy for Fred. Mm. Cost the Giants a pennant, in theory, by by not running all the way to touch second base on a quote-unquote walk-off hit. That story, that moment in time in baseball still sort of lives because occasionally it happens again. Now, we, Mm -hmm. the Beavers, got away with it, in a sense, on Sunday. Travis Bazzano, and just for Jim Joyce's sake, who's kind enough to join us. Jim, by the way, hello again. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining the show. It's very nice to talk to you, Mike. I know a little bit about infamy, so uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you, Jim. I'll give you the quick setup. I think uh, you know I we have a mutual friend in Dwight Jaynes, and I called Dwight, and Dwight called you to try to get some clarification. But just the setup, real quickly, again: bases loaded, two down, bottom of the ninth inning on Sunday, a ten ten tie. Garrett Forrester. It's a line drive to right field, base hit, our runner from third. Dallas Macias comes down the line to score. I'm very excited about it. And the, and the Beavers won at 11 to 10. And, you know, okay, and here's the, the, the gathering, the mob scene out in shallow right field uh, with a Gatorade bath for Garrett Forrester on the walk-off hit. And I'm happy, and I'm, you know, the voice of the Beavers and happy. Then I see Chip Hale, the head coach for Arizona, walking out of the dugout. And you probably know Chip, former big league manager and ball player and, and worked games when he played in the PCL and then in the big leagues, I would imagine. But anyway, Chip comes out and is talking to the umpires, and I get a little nervous. What in the <laughs> world? I just saw a walk-off hit. What could he possibly be talking about? Apparently, their right fielder took the ball and ran to second base and stood on it. The infielders had apparently vacated the field. I, I don't know the whole story, Jim, and I still don't fully know it. But Chip was making the argument that the Beaver runner, Travis Bazzano, going from first to second, did not touch second base. Thus, we appeal, we think it's a force play, and we think we're playing on now into the 10th inning. Chip Hale listened to an explanation from the crew chief, Bill Van Raphorst. Bill explained some things to him, and, and I saw all of this. I saw Chip listening, and then I saw Chip kind of shrug his shoulders and I'm, he said, okay, patted the umpire on the back and turned to shake hands with Beaver coach Mitch Canham as if whatever he was told satisfied him. So I'm still, Jim, I share that with you, and you've seen every possible scenario as an umpire under the sun at the major league level. I don't know if you ever saw anything quite like that before with an appeal denied. I, I, I don't. So hearing what you've heard from me, what do you make of that scenario? Well, the very first thing, and I also talked to Dwight about this this morning, the very first thing is uh, is, is kind of key to a certain degree is, is where the defensive players were if they were still between the lines. Now, 
if everybody's vacated the field, you can say that they gave up the right to appeal. But the way that Dwight explained it to me, it doesn't sound that way. And that something was said between the umpires and Chip, who I had Chip as a player, as a coach, and as a manager. And Chip is not a real excitable guy in the first place. And I didn't realize that he was actually the, uh, the head coach of, was it Arizona? Yes, Arizona Wildcats. That's awesome for him. Yes. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. But, okay, let's just, let's just say that it, under normal circumstances, the balls hit the right field, and if that right fielder just starts jogging in, and the runner from first or third does not touch the next preceding base, including the batter runner, you still have a force play field. And if that right fielder ran in or jogged in, whatever the case may be, and stepped on second base with every with all the other things that are still in play. That's an out. Mm-hmm. Right. Play. Yeah. Period. If that's in fact if that's in fact what happened, one shouldn't have counted. Then what I don't understand. I agree with you, and I think he, the Beaver coaches that I've talked to <laughs> all agree with that. So maybe in a sense, the Beavers got lucky or were fortunate that that it wasn't perceived or construed that way i'm trying to figure out jim and maybe it's chip's temperament that you've alluded to but why he seemed to accept whatever explanation was given unless somehow the disposition of the defenders came into it could that be the thing that maybe convinced chip that yeah we'd kind of given up on it perhaps yes yes i i think that's probably there was probably something in the translation of the rule or the translation of what happened um, my first indication, when Dwight told me the story, my first indication was is that the, and, and I'm not going to put the blame on the umpires at all on this. You know me well enough. I mm-hmm. would never do that. Right. But if there was a mistaken identity that somebody had said that this was a time play and that the runner from third had scored before the out was recorded, I can see that discussion going on in the field. I actually had something similar to that in Arizona, and I had bases loaded, and I had only one out on the field, and a base hit to right field. Everybody uh, was running, and the left fielder threw the ball to third base, and then the third baseman actually threw the ball to second base because the runner from first was dogging it, and he didn't make it to second. And we actually had a double play. Yeah. Then, like if it was a ground ball hit to the third base, right? And the run, the run scored or crossed the plate. My partner scored the run, and I'm standing out in the outfield, and I'm saying to myself, "Something's wrong. Something's not quite right here." And all of a sudden, it hit me: this is nothing but a double play, just not a double play that I've ever seen before. It went from left field to third. It went from It went from seven to five to four, which is, you don't see that. And so I actually had to walk into my partner and I asked him, I said, Paul, did you score this run? And he said, yes, I did. I said, we have to take it down because this is a double play. It's a force play issue. Bob Melvin actually was the manager of the Diamondbacks at the time. So that's how far back it was. Mm. And he had, he had trouble grasping it also. 
until I finally said, Bob, this is no different than a ground ball to the shortstop that goes from second to first. The only difference is this went from the outfield to third to second. And it's not a time. And he tried to bring up the time play issue. I said, Bob, a time play is taken off the board when you have a force play issue. Mm-hmm. Bases loaded, first, second, you know, it, it's taken down. The force play eliminates all runs that are scored. And I think that might have been part of the supposing in this. And that's what I'm thinking might have been said. And, Jim, one other thing that kind of came up in the discussion about this was the uh, the amount of the, – if, if, if the players were on the field and what could be done, it was over. They, you, they had already gone through a celebration. People were leaving the field and things like that. At what point in a situation like this do you guys, if it's a walk-off situation – spread everybody out and call it all back and say, we, we got to do this over again. Right? The run doesn't score. Is there a point which you say, no, it's, it's over? Uh, <laughs> I actually saw something like that also in the big leagues. That also happened in Arizona. <laughs> I, I told Dwight that play this morning, and this was also a bases-loaded situation, and it was a ball that was hitting the gap. And so they only needed one run. So when the run crossed the plate, the offensive team, and I'm not really sure, it was Arizona actually, they started celebrating, but the runner from first didn't go to second, and the runner from third didn't, or second didn't go to third. The security guard in left field came out on the field and picked up the baseball, and the left fielder waving his arms at him because he realized something was wrong. The security guard threw the baseball to the left fielder, the left fielder threw it to the shortstop, and they tried to appeal, and the umpires did not allow the appeal because the ball was dead being picked up by a spectator. And then that that turned into a time play. And it was it was I was in actually in replay for that one. And but uh that was another one where the umpires had to explain that because where the ball was and who picked it up, the offensive, the defensive player didn't didn't provide the very first part of the play, so that that eliminated the the um, appeal situation, uh, which was really kind of kind of strange. But to answer your question more direct. It doesn't matter if there's a celebration going on or whatever. All the defensive team has to do is make the umpire aware of what they're doing, and when they appeal, the umpire needs to rule on that. And it doesn't matter if there's offensive players on the field or whatever. Jim Joyce, Major League umpire from 1987 to 2016, joining us on the Joe Beaver Show. Who better to kind of help give us some, some clarity on this? There has been no modification of any of that. We tried to, there was something going on yesterday where somebody said they saw somewhere where if, if, if in a timing type situation, the winning run in this case scores and the guy hits first base, that's all that matters. Then the force play part is taken out. That's been modified. That hasn't been modified. Has it Jim? I mean, the rule still is what Fred Merkel ran up against in 1908, isn't it? Right. I think Abner Doubleday wrote that one in and it's never changed. Uh, <laughs> That that is that is strictly a you know a rule in baseball, especially in the, in the force play situations, runners being um, 
forced, being forced to move up, and that's been in the rule books forever. And that hasn't been modified or changed as far as I know. I know there's been some rule changes in baseball, but that is, I'm almost, I would, I would bet the house yeah. that that has not been changed at all. And it doesn't matter. The rule still states in a force situation, each runner must move up and touch the next base before the game is considered over. And I've seen it. I, it this is not that rare. I've seen it happen plenty of times. Mm-hmm. Jim, do you think Chip gave up gave up too easily? Then perhaps being the the, you, the temperament that you described, he kind of took. Yeah, I saw him put his hands up in the air, kind of like, "Well, okay." Patted uh, yeah. Jim Van, Ra- uh, Van Bill Van Rapphorst on the back and went over to shake hands with Mitch. It, it, capitulating too easily, or was he given information that satisfied him? Evidently, apparently, he was given information that satisfied. Okay. Him. Uh, I know Chip. I've had I've had discussions with Chip, and Chip has never been. I have never had Chip ever come out on me and be um, uh, overly excited. He's always been had a calm demeanor. Um, I actually had a um, um, obstruction call with Chip when he was the manager of the Diamondbacks, and it, it was just it was like business as usual. It was um, Jim. I don't think this was the way that. Uh, I'd like to see it work out. And I said, okay, let me, uh, let me take another look at this. I'll get with my crew and we'll find out. I gave him the explanation after the fact and he was fine with it. Hmm. So this one sounds to me like it was, um, and, and the only, like I said, with the, the way that Dwight was explaining to me, it sounds to me like there was a confusion on a time play. That's what this sounds like yeah. to me. Not be, not being there, not seeing it. Um, but if I'm going to put a disclaimer on it, I would say that it probably was explained as a time play in one regard or the other. Yeah. And um, now, I mean, I know some of those guys that that do the games down there, mm-hmm. and uh, they're all very competent umpires, yes. and, and and they do a great job. Mm-hmm. But that's what this sounds like to me. Okay. Well, if you ever just, we might even be able, you know, and off the record, if we ever, if you ever get any conversations with anybody about it, I find it, it's fascinating to me on a certain level, given how long the game's been going on. And, and, and you said, this isn't so rare. I'm with you. I've read about enough situations like this, but it was unique to us. I'd never seen one quite like this. And one witness at the ballpark, uh, a writer, Brooks Hatch, whom we really uh, uh, respect and appreciate, he, this is another aspect to it. Brooks said he watched to the end. I was busy doing my postgame stuff and not even watching some of this stuff, you know, unfold on the field. Brooks said that he saw the Arizona defender step on the bag with the ball and the umpire, Bill Van Rapphorst, I think, saw him do that and immediately put the palm safe and said, no, 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 he's every, everybody's safe, safe in the moment. And then Chip, after the fact, came and asked about the appeal. So Bill knew what Chip was asking about, but still right. said safe. It, so maybe Bill thought our runner did hit, uh, touch the bag, but, but most witnesses say, uh, no, he didn't. Right. Um, I'm, I'm going to revert back to 
a glitch in, uh, just a glitch that maybe everybody involved thought this was a time play because that's the only way yeah. that I can see any okay. any way to explain it. Yeah. Um, and you know, <laughs> uh, without putting them in in the um, jackpot, um, I, I'm thinking that there has to be a reason that the umpires. <laughs> did not enforce the force out rule. Mm -hmm. uh, And and the only thing I can even come, there's only another thing I can think of is that is the defensive team has vacated the field, but I'm going to find that a little tough because if the left fielder is coming in and he's going to go right to second base, that's hard for me to believe too. That they've given Um, up. And so, yeah. So I'm reverting back to the yeah. time uh, the, the, the time play rule. It's interesting. And yeah. It's very easy to go that route. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, well, the run scored and mm-hmm. before the out was recorded, and yeah. I, I, I can I can I can see that, but you got to revert back to the force run rule. Jim, this has been uh, very helpful to us. We have another guest coming up here in a few minutes. Would you, you were kind enough to, to answer my call and call me back, and, and you're one of those guys who fell in love with the Pacific Northwest. I first met you when you were doing games in the Pacific Coast League before your long and distinguished career in Major League Baseball, uh, and you still live out here. I love, the, I love folks who end up coming to Portland and to the PCL and, and staying. And you're one of them, Jim. You still live in Beaverton, huh? Absolutely. I'm still here. Um, I've, I've got my roots planted. I consider myself actually an Oregonian now. Uh, I'm a, I know I'm a transplant, but you know what? I think I'm a good transplant. <laughs> no doubt. Hey, can we – there's so many other things. Uh, in, in, can we talk again sometime about – about the potential of ABS and other dynamics in the current game and rule changes and so on. Would you be willing to to share some thoughts with us down the road sometime about these matters? I would love to do it because I have a couple opinions about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it soon, Jim. Uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks we'll reach out again. Uh, congratulations on your great career, and we're glad you're enjoying retirement in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And Let's touch base again soon, Jim. Thanks for taking time for us today. Mike, it was my pleasure. Y'all stay safe out there. Thanks a lot, Jim. Jim Joyce. I had one question, and I was sitting there going, should I try and work it in now? We'll get get them next time. We'll get them next time. Uh, Bad calls notwithstanding. My question is a serious question to uh, someone who has gotten to the highest level of of the game. And I don't know how to ask it without sounding disrespectful. Because it's a literal question, and that is, why would anybody want to do something where everything you do is going to be questioned, maligned, you're going to be known as the, the biggest idiot on the planet for everything you do, virtually? There's no perfect It's game. a fair question for any Yes, he does have the one major bungle, but I don't even, that's not a highlight of the anything. The perfect game thing? Yeah. 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 It, it's, it shouldn't even be, unfortunately, it has to be a part of his record. But to be at that level for that many years... You're the best of the best, and those guys get paid oh, yeah. pretty well. Yeah, they get paid, so I get the money aspect to it. Yes, but for anybody, I, I just no one's happy. Not in, not everyone's happy. I mean, you're not going to ever make, but there's so there's always a group. Ah, oh, you're a bum. You're a bum, and my nephew gets right. accosted in parking I lots. Know. 
to do uh, high school baseball. It, that's a good question. Well, next time we get Jim on, we'll touch on a number of things. He even alluded to it indirectly with his, uh, well, I know my share know. of infamy or yeah, whatever, right, right. Fred Merkel, but the blown call on the perfect game in 2010, Armando Galarraga, one out away from a perfect game, and Joyce mm-hmm. booted a call at first on the 27th out. And it would have been a perfect and game, right and away, it, but there was no up. replay Why mechanism. Over- there wasn't. Uh, I don't know, but it, back then, in 2010, they didn't have the ability to overrule that call. But two years later, he saved a, a, a person's life at an Arizona Diamondbacks right, game. Right. At Chase Field, a Diamondback employee was in cardiac arrest prior to the game. Joyce performed CPR until help arrived. The life-saving call by Jim saved that employee's life. So that's much more important than, than kicking a call in a potential perfect game. But I remember Jim and the agony that he was in. Oh, yeah. He just said, I, I blew it. It's on me. I'm so sorry. Here's Armando Galarraga, one out away. That guy right there, Jim Joyce, owned it immediately. He didn't try uh, to say, well, yeah. no, he said, I blew it. Galarraga handled it very well and as well. And he was gracious to Jim. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, you know, obviously that's a divine life moment. But just why? I mean, maybe not why. I know these guys love baseball, and if they can't play it anymore, they'll go and be umpires. And, and you, don't, you, you don't get to the majors if you're not the, the best of the best. Right. And there's the bad ones of the best, but they're still the best. Jim Joyce, our, our thanks to him for joining us. And I think he must be right. But Chip, accepting the time in play yeah. explanation, I, there's a lot to that. Someday maybe I'll, not too early now, it's too soon. Oh, yeah. Chip's got a fairly mild temperament. He might answer the question if I text him or call him someday and say, hey, what about that play? Oh, well, here's what they told me. And they were right. Well, and my question to Jim was along the lines of, if that late in the game, that late in the process where Chip is talking to the umpires, I mean, half the stadium was empty. Well, it's true. But, Would they have reversed? But Joy E, oh, I see what you mean. Call, Try to call everybody yeah. back and go again? Yeah, I think so. Because like okay. Jim said, it doesn't matter how much celebrating or right, hands on right, the field, whatever right. else. Like, you know, almost like the football game. Well, there's a penalty flag there. I don't care if people are celebrating mm-hmm. this apparent yeah, victory right. for the other team. We'll put everybody back out and keep playing from there. Let's uh, break and come back with Kate Maxim. Yesterday we enjoyed our conversation with uh, Gabe Winkler. Look forward to getting an update from Kate with the Pac-12s coming soon. Back at beautiful Dexter Lake for the women's rowing team. 1240 Joe Radio. The Peacock Bar and Grill is making eating out affordable with a $6.50 specials from 11 till 9 every day of the week. On Monday, it's a small sirloin steak dinner. Tuesday, any pub-sized burger on the menu. Wednesday, it's beef stroganoff. Thursday, it's spaghetti and meatballs. Friday is a French dip. Saturday, pulled pork sliders. And Sunday, it's penne mac and cheese. You can always call ahead and get it to go or have it delivered. The Peacock Bar and Grill, a local favorite since 1929 on 2nd Street, downtown Corvallis. Readers of the Albany Democrat Herald voted Stutzman and Krupp Contractors the best roofer in the Mid-Valley for 2021 and 2022. As Stutzman and Krupp, they employ a large team of roofers so they get in and get it done, often in just one day. Estimates are free, and there's financing available, too. So if you need a new roof, call or stop by their showroom on Rice Street in Albany. Stutzman and Krupp Contractors, they do it right. CCB 96278. 
Complete your next summer home project with Mike's Corvallis Bargain Center. Now with cedar fence board, decking, trim boards, and garden boxes. Plus 2x8 and 2x12 cedar in stock. Mike's Corvallis Bargain Center also has interior and exterior plywood, hardwoods, as well as a limited supply of brand new appliances. Complete your next interior or exterior project with help from Mike's Corvallis Bargain Center. Conveniently located off Highway 34 on Texas Street between Albany and Corvallis. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Parker. We recently had the need to replace some major appliances, and I'm delighted to report that we called Brandon and his team at Kellenberger Appliance in Lebanon. We couldn't be happier with our experience. They answered all of our questions, put us in the best deal, and promptly delivered and installed a new washer and dryer. When you are in need of an appliance, I strongly encourage you to call Kellenberger Appliance. Visit Kellenbergers.com or stop by Kellenberger Appliance at 21 North Main Street in Lebanon. A big thank you from the Parkers to Kellenberger Appliance. Wedding time means framing time. All those special pictures. Steve at the Frame Shop can even help you put together a collage. And while Al is stepping back, he'll still be on site. And Steve, with his 44 years of experience, will be gradually taken over. You won't even notice the difference. Other than Steve might be at the counter more often. They'll still help you find that perfect mat and frame to complement your pictures and decor. And you'll still find a great selection of ready-made frames, prints, and art supplies. The Frame House on West First in historic downtown Albany. Leading off this inning for your tax and wealth management team is David Mendenhall. Batting second, Bill Heck. And batting third, Robert Berry. It's always important to have a talented lineup. The same is true if you need some advice on personal or business tax planning or just some help with financial strategy. With over 40 years in business, Tax and Wealth Management has the experience you need to hit that home run. Call or stop by Tax and Wealth Management in Corvallis, your hometown tax team, and start your journey on the road to success. The Joe Beaver Show continues. Mike Parker with John Warren. We enjoyed a conversation yesterday with Gabe Winkler. I'm not, John's trying to find the final numbers, but the women's rowing coach, Kate Maxim, will join us here on the show. And before we even start talking about the the most recent event at Dexter, the return to Dexter for the Pac-12's beautiful Dexter Lake, Damn Proud Day occurred, and once again, both rowing programs, the women's rowing program represented, showed up so well, amazingly well. Kate Maxim is the head coach of the women's rowing program, and Kate, thank you for taking time for us today. Before we get into specifics about your team, how proud were you again on Damn Proud Day of the program, the efforts, the energy, and grateful to your donors. It just seems like you energize your base as well as about anyone at the department. Congratulations, Kate. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really proud of our team and of our alumni, our donors. You know, I, I think one of the, there are a few key shifts for us this year, which was really prepping our team for the weeks leading up to it and asking them to get invested, and we gave them and a challenge of hitting a certain number of donors and raising a certain amount of money, which they all far exceeded, which is just another way that they, they can demonstrate their buy-in to the program. So I was proud of that, stepping up a notch. And then we are just getting more and more traction with our decades, our class leads, our, you know, our, our alumni network, the way that we're staying engaged, the way that we're staying in contact throughout the year, year to year, is allowing us just to kind of strengthen and reconnect that network because there are thousands and thousands of OSU rowers out there um, that care very deeply about this experience. So 
Yeah, no, it was awesome. We're we're really proud, and you know we're stoked to get the most amount of donations that that won us the uh, one of the trustee grants that gave us another fifteen thousand dollars, which is just so huge. So thank you to everyone out there for making it such a huge success. Kate, I, I I was told that the mechanism was for a specific that each coach and program and so on was raising money on damn proud day for something specific, not just a general fund. Is that accurate for you? Is there something specific that the money's raised on this damn proud day are going to? Yeah, well, we're always looking, we always have, uh, you know, a responsibility to fundraise to continue to keep pace with what the top competitive teams are doing travel-wise and racing-wise and recruiting-wise. But really this year, we focused in on the importance of our training trip. So, as you know, we train on the Willamette, and the current is an interesting variable at various times of year that affects our ability to learn boat feel and know our speed. And we only have you know, Dexter Lakes an hour away. You know, we have all these like, sort of challenges and get down to still water. So two weeks out of the year, one in uh, January, and then one in March, we get on to still water in warmer weather in smaller boats. And, you know, that really does help our boat feel and our boat speed, but it also builds teams. You know, we had a really young team. We have a really young team this year. So those weeks that we spent together in the hotel, having meals together, you know, there's a quantifiable speed on the water that we gained, but more importantly, or just as importantly, is really the bond and the relationship that we're building outside of that training time on a trip together. Women's rowing coach Kate Maxim joining us. Kate, where do you go then to find still water uh, dexter's an hour i mean where do you go that's a great question well I'm, and we sometimes do those trips dexter but you know the the weather everywhere is a lot more volatile so um the the issue is we think about temperature the temperature of the air and of the water because if we slip in our small boats it's a safety concern mm-hmm. so we that's the bigger issue so we went down to san diego in january and we actually brought the rain with us but <laughs> It was warm. You know, the water was warmer and the air was warmer, so it's a little safer to have, you know, to get into those small pairs and, and, and doubles and fours. Um, and they were grateful just to get out in someplace new. Um, and then during the spring break, we went down to Lake Natoma in California. So it's really about just getting into some warmer, safer temperatures to take more risks with some of the skills that we're trying to develop. Oregon State rowing coach Kate Maxim joining us here on the Joe Beaver Show. Kate, this is John with Mike. How are you guys doing then equipment-wise? you have the skulls? you have the, the things that you need? Right, yeah. So we have, thanks again to our donors, our alumni, we've built out our fleet of pairs. And uh, so that's when you have two people and each person has one oar. A double is when each person has two oars. So that's um, sculling versus sleeping. So we've built out that fleet, and that's been a game changer for us. We use it all fall and in the winter. And I think that's really helping us um, especially our walk-on population or our younger rowers exponentially gain boat feel. Um, but that's always a complication because you've got to pack the trailer and you've got you to drive it somewhere. So that's a lot of resources that go into it. You know, never mind the hotel, the meals for a team that's 45 people. But, yeah, the equipment, you know, is, is huge. And i got to give a big shout-out to our, our boatman and boathouse director, Don Schneider, out there. I think you're listening. He drove our boats all over this country, literally up to Pullman and then out to New Jersey this year. <laughs> And, and then back, and i got to give him a huge shout-out because that's, that's a grind for sure. Absolutely. And thank you for, for mentioning him and, and that, uh, Coach. Uh, Kate Maxim joining us. 
Kate, we asked Gabe Winkler this yesterday. I'm wondering what your story is. We may have touched on it before. How did you find? When did you get into rowing? How did you find it? When when did that bug hit you? You know, it's really it's funny. I didn't know anything about it. I had lived overseas as a kid because my father was a diplomat. And so I came back to the States in around middle school. And I hadn't really played sports. I did a little tennis, a little bit of horseback riding. But I really didn't know that I um, was, could be athletic and so, until I got into high school. And a friend took me out to, like, the, the, the cross-training camp for anybody who wanted to try out for rowing. And that, I wasn't even taking strokes. I just fell in love with first, like, you know, like I just love being physically active and really aggressive and really competitive. I didn't know that about myself. Um, and then that's how I kind of got into rowing. And I, you know, I was a little bit of a, uh, you know, I was a new kid on the block. I didn't have a whole lot of friends that had, you know, I'd moved around so much. So I found community on the rowing team. And the, the intensity of the sport spoke to me right away in my freshman year of high school, like in tennis. I could hit the ball really hard, but and it would sometimes go in. <laughs> um, but with rowing, I could just crank on it, and that mm-hmm. was just really, honestly, therapeutic for me um, at that time. I just really found a connection to the, the balance between being really aggressive and also really still at the same time. Mm. It's a pretty cool experience. Now, what is the balance between those two? To be really aggressive mm-hmm. and still, that, that sounds... That sounds like a tough balance to achieve. Could you explain that a bit for me, please? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're using your entire body. You're, you're, it's mostly a leg sport, right? You're, the feet move, so you're in this sort of full-on squat position where you've planted the oar in the water, and you're using all of the force of your legs and into your torso and then into your arms to generate as much power as you can in one stroke. But then on the recovery, your oar comes out of the water. You need to balance the shell, and you need to be in sync with the team. Um, and it, the, the speed, and you can crank on it on your own, but if you're not going together, um, it'll, it's a hot mess, right? So the stillness comes in on your timing. You've got you've to lay on that power and be explosive at a specific and a precise way at the, at the right time. So you've got to develop a lot of mental toughness to manage pain, to explode on the oar on the drive, and then to have the focus, manage the pain while you're breathing hard, but to stay in sync on the recovery up to the next stroke. And you're doing that on a, at race pace, you're doing that 36 to 40 strokes per minute. Um, wow. So you're basically, if you think about maxing out 36 to 40 times in a minute and staying in demand of your body for about six, six and a half minutes, it's a pretty wild experience. Absolutely. And how teachable are these skills? I mean, you know, you, and I'm interested to know when you get the proverbial, and Gabe talked a little bit about, you go across campus, you, I don't know if you set up tables and invite people to come and sign up and maybe try out. You're always sort of on the yeah. lookout for athletes in your sport. How, if somebody is a good athlete, let's say, like you were, and had some ap- aptitude for athletics in general, what about the skills required? How teachable are they to, quote-unquote, decent athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a certain type of athlete, one that is, you know, the same kind of athlete that's drawn to swimming or cross country. There's an element of really pushing into an intensity for an extended period of time and not not short burst work. So um, there is that mentality piece of it, but it's extremely teachable. We, you know, the good news is we take thousands and thousands and thousands of strokes between, you know, September all the way through to June. Um, and this year in our top varsity eight, we have two walk-ons in the boat that were walk-ons last year. 
that they started rowing last year. And that's pretty rare. I got to say, like, that's, it's really rare to have a walk-on make the varsity eight the very next year. Mm-hmm. But both of them are outstanding athletes. Um, uh, one from Portland, Oregon, one from Bend, Oregon. And they're either tall, they're really strong, they have a great balanced athletic background, they've got ski racing in there, there's swimming in there, there's cross-country in there. So they basically came to us super fit and cross-trained. And the other element of this is they're both, um, you know, people, they're both really bright. Um, I think the people that can learn the quickest are the ones that know how to learn, meaning they both, they're, they're just really curious and they're more like sponges and they're not getting hung up on their mistakes. That's the biggest deterrent. If someone gets their confidence and it gets wrapped up in making mistakes early on, well, then forget it. Mm. Um, you have to be willing to fail, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of times um, and find the joy in that. Is there, an easy, is there an easy way to differentiate strength versus skill? Um, just as a layman, I'm looking at it thinking it's just upper body strength and everybody's stroking as hard as they can in unison. How much? There must be a lot more to it than that. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's mostly lower body strength because, again, the seat moves. You get into a full compression, so you generate the majority of the force with your leg drive, and you're basically connecting through your torso, through your arms, to the handle. So um, what strength and fitness can be found out pretty quickly. Or like, you know, we use the ERG machine. We kind of train them up on the machine. We start to see some numbers, and we have a sense if someone's got an engine or not. But then the skill part really comes into how responsive they are in the water. And if you put them around better athletes, which is where our recruiting comes into, oh, sorry, better rowers or, or, or skilled rowers, and that's why we do recruit globally. We bring in that skill, and they come in, they already know how to take the strokes, and you put a, a really great athlete, a great walk-on right behind them, which is exactly what we've got going on in the varsity eight, they learn very quickly. Um, if it's just all walk-ons and there's no one knows what to do in there, it take, definitely takes a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 is there if you go to like the New Jersey, the East Coast, uh, wherever the the mecca is for the greatness of it, is there one star that as they walk through, all the rowers stop, it gets quiet, and they go, there they are, they're the greatest of all time, or is it spread out a little more than that? You know, honestly, I think this is the coolest part about, you know, again, shout out to Title IX. Women's rowing continues to intensify in the depth of speed across the entire country. Every conference now is getting deeper and tighter on their margins. So, yeah, you know, Texas has won two back-to-back championships. But, you know, we, we have, we're not seeing, like, one team dominate for, like, it might get a two or maybe a three-year run, but then it gets mixed up at the top, and they're not doing that without, you know, a field of 20 other teams, 22 other teams on the country, you know, really pushing on them. So I think that the sport is continuing to evolve, you know, and, and it's getting faster and faster, and I think, you know, you just got to learn your own landscape. You have to figure out the variables at your campus and your, in your location, your body of water, get the right amount of resources, which is why Damn Proud Day is so important to us and our other fundraisers, you know, get the resources behind it. And, it, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. If you're willing to be creative, I think, you know, there's a way to create a competitive team just about anywhere in the country. So the field is really exciting. And I'll say this, my, I have to give a shout-out to my husband. He's a photographer for Road 2K, and he covers, he goes to the Olympics, and he covers racing all over, collegiate racing all over the country. And he routinely says it's the best race in the world compared to even the Olympics, World Championships, is the Women's NCAA Rowing Championships because the field is so 
dense and tight for women. Mm. And there's no other place on this globe that you see that kind of racing, especially for women. And what what about the, the upcoming races for you based on Dexter Lake? You just came through the Dexter mm-hmm. Lake invite and had strong performances. Now the Pac-12s are going to be right back there. In terms of the excitement of and the talent, it may not be NCAA championship level, but the Pac-12 championships at Dexter coming up soon. Kate, those will be. I'm sure Eric would like those too. <laughs> yeah, no, they're great. I mean, certainly, you know, Stanford and, and Washington and Cal, or you know, Stanford and Washington, they're they're routinely up there in the top. One that we always, we always have a, a conference team that's in the top three, definitely the top six. So that's fantastic. And then. You know, UCLA, USC, Oregon State, Washington State, the four of us, you know, we've been pushing on each other for years now. And um, I'd like us to see closing the gap between those four and the top three. I'm telling my team, I'm asking them, can we start playing that seed? Can we start to think about this differently and not just, you know, now that we've fought our way out of seventh place over the last six years, we're finding ourselves in that fourth, fifth slot, seemingly. I don't know how this will go. But really – whether it's this year or the future, I, I want to be the catalyst for changing that up, too, and thinking about how do we get Oregon State on the podium? You know, are you willing? What do we need to do? What's the next evolution for, for this program? That's interesting. I, I have one last question. It's a dumb one, but it's a real one. Um, in reading The Boys <laughs> in the Boat, it, it seemed like at that point the, the national champion team would go on to compete for the, the Olympic gold or the Olympics as the national team. Is that done differently now? And in women... Do you select just the best rowers for the national team, or is it the team that wins the national championship? And that's not a stupid question. I, and I think historically that had, you know, you way a while ago you would see an entire boat, you know, maybe making their way in that, in that way. But now it's definitely drawing from all of the programs. And, again, that field is so much bigger and deeper now, right? So the U.S. team can select from all of these programs. I think I can't, I, I should know this number. I think it's. There are 88 or 92 Division One programs out there um, that they can pull from, you know, and pull all them. They can all-star team. Um, we do have a young woman who was just invited to the under-23 team for this summer, uh, and that's exciting, and, you know, she's contemplating that opportunity. And um, so I think there's, there's a process through which, you know, prior to the senior team, there are these development opportunities that feed, that feed into the senior U.S. team. And shout-out to Alina Hashtram. She's right now trialing with the senior team, um, trying to make her way. Uh, you know, she's trying to have her eye on the Olympics. We'll see. She's definitely in the mix. But um, it's just really cool to see more and more Oregon State women, you know, back-to-back instead of one-off every now and then, more and more women, you know, um, from Oregon State getting into at least the under-23 system. Absolutely. I but- love the sport. I just have a problem with this tall thing. Gabe and I are going around, too. <laughs> Because I'm 5'8", I love rowing. I love it, but apparently not not tall enough. Hey, final thing, Kate. Thank you for your time today. Gabe raved about the venue the Dexter Lake is, and the Pac-12 championships are back again. Do you join him in loving it as a venue? And Carl Mazdam told me, he and Eric taking great photographs this past weekend at Dexter. Carl was saying, it's awesome there. And the scene there at the finish and the covered bridge and all of that. I mean, do you concur? Absolutely. You know, we got, there were so many of the visiting teams, like I think Minnesota's team was like, they were so happy to be there. So it was their favorite race venue. You know, Clemson came out in March and they saw snow for the first time on the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a beautiful spot. And more importantly than that, it's a fair course. So I am absolutely delighted to be back there. 
I hope the weather will – I'm confident the weather will cooperate. We were kind of at that time of the year where the wind sits down a bit. Um, either way, even if it isn't, you know, it hits the lanes in the same way. So it's a fair course, and that will allow for the NCAA selection committee to take a look at the results and say, okay, these margins are real as opposed to – a course where, you know, maybe one lane gets more protected from the winds than the other. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So yeah. I'm stoked, and I'm looking forward to seeing all of our alum out there and our barbecue afterwards there, and we're going to be honoring our seniors. It'll be their last race on Dexter. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm just eager to see what these kids decide to do, what they decide to lay down on the course. Kate, it's great talking to you again. I'll see you in the neighborhood. Thanks for taking time for us today on the Joe Beaver Show. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, and go Beavs. Go Beavs, indeed. Kate Maxim, our guest. Johnny, we'll take a final quick break, wrap it up. On the other side, you've got somebody on the Downward Dog phone line. which It's we'll, a mystery guest. And we will talk to a mystery guest next. Enter and sign in, please, on 1240 Joe Radio. Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation change? Hi, I'm former Oregon State athlete Tim Ewis, your Corvallis Edward Jones financial advisor. When we work together, we'll focus on what's important to you. We'll use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And we'll partner to help your strategy stay on track. Contact me today, 541-758-8. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Unified Insurance Group is your local independent insurance agency in Corvallis. They represent numerous insurance companies and specialize in auto, home, and business insurance. See Mike Eves, Taylor Starr, and Tom Worth. They'll help find an insurance plan that works best for you. If you're looking for auto, home, or business insurance, see the Unified Insurance Group, 320 Southwest 3rd Street in downtown Corvallis. They're your hometown team, always putting you first. When you think of Albans, you think plumbing. And when you think of plumbing, you think water. Hi, this is Katie Albin. Some plumbing projects don't have anything to do with water. At Albans Plumbing, we also work with natural gas and propane lines. So if you need a gas line for home heating, cooking, or for a gas water heater, give us a call. At Albans Plumbing, plumbing's all we do. Call 754-8282. Albans Plumbing. Stargazer Premier Florist in Corvallis knows that flowers are a beautiful way to make mothers feel loved and appreciated. And they want to help deliver them the best arrangement possible. Choose from Stargazer's wide selection of Mother's Day flower arrangements, plants, and baskets, and they'll deliver a beautiful, unique gift right on time to the mothers in your life. Stop in, call, or view Stargazer's selection of Mother's Day arrangements online at StargazersPremierFlorist.com. Stargazers Premier Florist, located at 925 Northwest Circle Boulevard in Corvallis. Locally owned and operated for over 30 years, people in the Mid-Valley have been going to Corvallis Floor Covering. They thank their many friends and customers for your continued support and look forward to working with you on your next remodeling project. Browse through their large showroom with a beautiful selection of carpet, countertops, sheet vinyl, linoleum, tile, hard surface floors, and window coverings from all the popular brands. Corvallis Floor Covering, corner of 2nd and Van Buren downtown, or log on to CorvallisFloorCovering.com. Shop local. Shop Corvallis Floor Covering. And go Beavs! 
Kubota LX Series tractors are the number one rated tractor brand for durability and owner experience in the United States and are the answer to having quality, comfort, and versatility. Kubota LX Series tractors are four-wheel drive and come with easy-to-operate three-range hydrostatic transmission. See Lynn Benton Tractor and Tangent or go to KubotaUSA.com for more information. All right, uh, real quick before we go to Dave on the line, the Oregon State men's golf team today was selected for the NCAA tournament, the regionals. Nice. Men's golf, the Beavers were selected and will go to, uh, they'll be held May 15th through 17th in Las Vegas. So the the Beavers will go to Vegas to regionals in men's golf. Congratulations, Coach Rehorn and an outstanding team. Let's go to Tumwater to wrap it up for today. No show tomorrow, Friday. We'll be at Weatherford Thompson Attorneys at Law, 130 West Avenue, downtown Albany, with a barbecue, tickets to give away, tickets to give uh, from uh, for the baseball games, and four, uh, four giveaways from local downtown Albany merchants. Friday, 11 to 1, Weatherford Thompson, our annual picnic, barbecue, free food, etc. Joe Beaver Roadshow Friday. Dave, good afternoon. Good afternoon, gentlemen. First, quickly, um, if I understood that dialogue correctly regarding uh, the, your radio call or software or signal, John, there's nothing wrong with your system. I'll just say something you guys can disavow. Mr. Manning is, doesn't have a radio voice. John Canzano has nothing to worry about in that market. He was just, <laughs> I'm just saying, he was just a bad caller. So there's nothing wrong with your system. So let me just get that out of the way. Uh, uh, and move on to my main reason for calling, which is the, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the college football playoff has come out with their formula for the first two years with the 12-team tournament. They've really done their homework, and the Rose Bowl, to my great relief, has landed very well. Because, as you know, the first four games, round one, going to be at the campus sites um, in 2024, the, the, um, the 20th and 21st of December. The quarterfinals, uh, the Fiesta Bowl will be a Tuesday night, the New Year's Eve. Uh, the Wednesday, New Year's Day, it'll be the Peach Bowl, the Rose Bowl, and the Sugar Bowl. So what we're accustomed to will survive. Mm-hmm. The semis will be at the Orange Bowl and the Cotton Bowl uh, the, the uh, following Thursday and Friday. So to avoid the savvily avoiding the NFL schedule on their last week, and that'll be the Orange and the Cotton the title game will be the 20th in Atlanta, a neutral site. You look at 2025, you can see the pattern fall out because the uh, cotton is moving to New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. The Fiesta and the Peach get the semis on the 8th and 9th. Again, this is the key. On New Year's Day, football's national, college football's national holiday. It's the orange, rose, sugar, triple header. The final is the 19th uh, um uh, a Monday, again, avoiding the NFL playoffs. So they, they've really worked out well because it's so easy to criticize the CFP people, but they seem to have gotten the calendar right. And more particularly still, I know it means a lot to you, especially, Mike, the Rose Bowl has survived yeah. with its customary slot at 2 p.m. kickoff in the Pacific time. Dave, so. TJ and I looked at this uh, last week when it came out, and... Let's explore this further down the line because I did look at the dates and the Rose Bowl setup, and the question I asked TJ is we were going to have it as a topic and never got around to it. 
was what does Oregon State or any Pac-12 team have to do to get into that? And it's basically be a certain uh, ranking uh, because the Rose Bowl, they'll probably put you in the Rose Bowl if there's a choice on the different bowl games. So if you're a certain uh, ranking in Oregon State, and you, you, and you qualify and you for qualify, the playoff, yeah, then they, they, you think they might have round. some regional integrity. Right, right. We have five okay. seconds left. Dave, let's pick this up. Talk to you Friday. See you soon. See you Friday. Weatherford Thompson, Rojo. K-E-J-O Corvallis. And translator, K-229-D-I Corvallis. The home of the Beavers. 1240 Joe Radio.